Oh, the shame that will get if you've let all the fans down. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I love playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. Yeah, I answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Now you're welcome along to Team 33 and a call here with you up until about 10 o'clock this evening. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can text us on 53106 or you can tweet us at Team 33. That's all spelled out in words. You can get this on podcast as well afterwards on the OTB Sports app. Tonight, I'm going to be taking you back 10 years, Valentine's Day 2012. One of the biggest stories probably in modern Scottish football history at least and that was that Rangers went into administration and following that went into liquidation and were forced out of the Scottish Premiership and down into the Scottish Leagues in the doldrums of Division 4 of Scottish football. To take us back and look at this story is uh, Tom English from BBC Scotland. Tom, thanks very much for joining me this evening. No bother, Enda. So, I mean, this is one of the biggest stories, probably... I'd, I'd argue that it probably is the biggest story in Scottish football history, if not modern Scottish football history, at least. I was a teenager when this happened and a teenager growing up in Donegal. Obviously, I was a sporting Celtic at the time. So my memories of this are warped. So I'm going to rely on you to provide the uh, journalistic facts to this. But in terms of the reporting of this, it must have been absolutely crazy at the time when this was happening uh, to be involved in it and to see it all unfolding in front of your eyes. Yeah, it was. I mean, listen, I would say the greatest, the greatest, biggest story in the history of Scottish football is the Lisbon Lions. Uh, this is undoubtedly the greatest fall um, of a story, the greatest negative of a story. Um, reporting on it was surreal. Um, you know, I was working for the Scotsman in Scotland on Sunday at the time. I was doing a couple of columns a week at the time and you'd sit down to do a column and you'd have a thought in your head for the column and then these statements would start coming out from various sides of this story and your column would change the tenet of your column would change because there's new information so you'd rethink your column and then there'd be another statement would come out from somewhere else which would change the tone of the column again that happened so many times Whereas while I was sitting to start to, to starting to write one column and you end up writing another based on all these mad emails and, and statements that were coming out. So it was a moving, a moving story, moved multiple times on many, many days. I have never reported on anything like it in my life. Yeah, it, was, it must have been absolutely crazy. And given the nature of Scottish football and especially Glasgow football, how weary were you of the fact that you know, no matter what side of the uh, the fence you come from on this, there are normal human beings working within Rangers Football Club that were in danger of losing their jobs because of the manner of which the club was run by um, essentially millionaires at the time. Yeah, I mean, look, it was a, it was an absolute bun fight. Um, but at, you're right, at the heart of it, there was some very good people, an awful lot of employees, normal folk, just like, just like us, 
who were in danger of losing their jobs. And you had to be cognizant of that. Um, it was, and it, it was difficult. I think, I think what made, certainly as a, as a journalist reporting on it, what helped me, I think, in hindsight was that I wasn't really active on Twitter at all in those days. So all of that craziness that would have been going on in Twitter, I was completely immune to it. Um, so and maybe there's a lesson in all of that, you know? Um, so all, all of this stuff that was happening, yeah, I was in touch with a lot, a lot of people from all different sides on this. Uh, because, you know, you had to run everything, everything through a sieve. You, you believe nothing until you knew it to be true. Because there was so many, so much spin, so much fabrication, so much guys pushing their own agenda uh, that you had to run everything through a, a bullshitometer. And uh, and that was that started from really from, from day one. Uh, it was... It was difficult because you had people at Rangers, good people, you know, in the press department or, you know, you know, all through a, a, a club of that size. It's got countless employees all in, in fear of of their jobs and not knowing what on earth was going on at their club. Hmm. So I, I guess for people who aren't familiar with the story or have forgotten the, the finer details, we'll run through what actually happened and you can piece together some of the facts that I might be missing here. So in a nutshell, Rangers were the dominant force in Scottish football in the 90s. They won nine in a row. Wim Janssen, who passed away just a, about a couple of weeks ago, was the manager for Celtic who stopped it. But David Murray was in charge of the club and he built that success, the Paul Gascoigne signings. This was all built on debt, essentially. He was building up debt within the club and financing. He had money himself, but his, his financial security allowed him to build debt within the club. And then in 2000s, Celtic, who had been run by Dermot Desmond, had caught up with them financially, essentially. And on the pitch, they were catching up as well. And to sort of compete with Celtic on the pitch with the players that Celtic were bringing in at the time, they started to underwrite their losses with more debt, essentially, with more borrowing from, from banks and from, from different investors as well. And when the financial crash hit, this is where it all sort of went belly up because the Royal Bank of Scotland were their main investors and they went into public ownership. So therefore, they were not willing to lend as much money to the club. So we might start with that. I know there's a lot of tax uh, issues that come into this as well and sort of, I don't know, creative ways that they got around tax, if you could call it that way. Uh, but we might start with that period, the 90s up until the early 2000s where where Rangers were building up this debt. This was probably a normal thing now looking at it if you compare it to the Manchester United situation of what they are doing. But given the situation in Scottish football and the fact that they're not the Premier League, this was a really precarious way to do business. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I think it was something of the order of 80 million they owed at one, at one point. Um, and it was success built on hubris. And at the time, that would have been uh, unbelievably difficult for Celtic fans because Celtic were run frugally. And across the city, you had this uh, spending machine, uh, winning all the trophies, uh, bringing all these star players in, uh, but with a mounting debt. Um, so that would have been... That would have been brutally hard. I mean, I was I was in Scotland from ninety two to ninety six, and then I went back to Ireland uh, 
and then I came back in 2005. <clears throat> so I missed a part of that. So I knew what, but I knew what was going on. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, I don't think Rangers could see, Rangers people could see a dark day coming. They thought that, I think they thought that this spending would continue uh, forever. And then, of course, as you say, the banking crisis hit. Um, Rangers Bank started to um, put the squeeze on uh, David Murray's own personal businesses, steel and stuff, hit the, hit the wall. Uh, very became very difficult for him. Um, Ranger spending kind of lessened and everything basically went from there. Hmm. In a bizarre way, that period where Rangers were acting so frivolously was actually probably the best period for Scottish football. Uh, if you're talking about the early 2000s where Martin O'Neill comes in and the two sides are really dominant forces within Europe as well as in Scotland. I mean, Scott, uh, Celtic get to the UEFA Cup final uh, in Seville. Rangers get to it in 2008 as well. So they are big clubs on a global uh, basis as well as just a domestic one. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Listen, they're massive clubs, full stop. They're just massive clubs in a very small uh, pool. I mean, they're, they're in a small country, t- tiny revenues, but you put these two clubs in any other league in the world and they will be recognised as, as giant football clubs. So um, there was a time, as you say, as in the early 2000s, playing in Champions League, doing well in Europe, uh, big European nights. Uh, but I think people who analysed Rangers at the time, and there weren't many, and I wasn't here, but we'll say that there was always that the Rangers situation, and we'll probably get onto the EBTs, um, but that it just it wasn't sustainable. And again, I use the word hubris because I think it was hubris that that created the downfall. Um, yeah. It was financial hubris. It was. Um, and it's from David Murray. I mean, we talk about Craig White. We talk about all the other cartoon characters in the story. It all, all of this, all of it, begins with with David Murray. Mm. In a it, such a strange way, it is so similar to what happened in Ireland with the housing market, and mm. even across the world. I mean, the housing market was propped up on on sand, and it was hubris that eventually caused the downfall because it was the most secure investment in the world until it wasn't and that's sort of similar to what rangers were at this point in time because the success was following they had nine in a row in the 90s they had five titles uh between 2003 and 2011 they were a a dominant force in football but you don't see these things coming until they eventually do we we will we should get into the ebts because i guess that that's the crux of where a lot of people outside of it can't really stand what Rangers were doing because I guess this is a complicated financial matter, but essentially EBT's Employment Benefit Trust, it was a manner of which Rangers essentially lent money to their players as wages, which allowed them to get around the uh, the national insurance contributions to the, uh, to the, the Queen, and it allowed the players to avoid paying income tax on their wages as well. So this was something Rangers did to bring money into the club, essentially to stop paying tax, essentially avoid tax or uh, even evade tax. If you want to go to the most extreme cases, 
um, and that allowed them to bring in money to pay back their investors for the debt that they were accounting, essentially. Yeah, and, and listen, and the EBTs were offered to players, offered to management, mostly to players. It allowed them to to bring in players that they couldn't otherwise afford or probably could not otherwise afford at that time. So, as you say, yeah, you've laid it out there, the whole EBT thing. Um, there's no question that they got players who that went on to win trophies that, that it's hard to see how they could have afforded them otherwise if it wasn't for this EBT thing. Um, so they took a chance. They rolled the dice with the EBTs and I think it was the absolute reason for their eventual downfall, their ruination, because the tax authorities eventually twigged on EBTs and started to investigate them. And I think it was Arsenal were using them briefly and Arsenal settled with HMRC. And then HMRC went after Rangers aggressively over it. And there was all this talk about this might cost Rangers 50 million. This tax bill to pay if HMRC win the case that this could cost Rangers a, a, a tax bill of 50 million pounds. All of this was happening at the same time that David Murray wanted to sell the club. I mean, he wanted to sell the club for about four years before he actually did sell it in 2011. Um, but he was trying to sell a club that had a potential tax bill of 50 million hanging over it. Now, what responsible owner would take that on? Is the 50 million real or is it not? Is it more than 50 million? There was this great unknown. Um, so everyone shied away from it. And I think Alistair Johnson, the chairman, or one of the direct former director, um, he was tasked with the job. He's big connections in America. Um, uh, he was tasked with the job of finding a buyer for Rangers, and he couldn't find one. And principally because of this potential fifty million pound liability, um, it takes a certain type of person to take that on. And they found a certain type of person in Craig White. Um, and everyone blames Craig White, understandably so. But it was David Murray who sold it to Craig White for a pound. Here you had this, this Scottish institution, this trophy-winning machine for many, many years, sold for a quid. That's how bad it got. I remember that happening. And obviously being a teenager, didn't really understand what was going on. So in terms of Craig White himself, he came into the club bought it for a pound, said he would sort out the tax issues, said he would sort out the debt, didn't do either of them. And then suddenly the HMRC come looking again. What, in your opinion, do you think was Craig White's goal here? Um, I, I did a number, I did two big interviews with Craig White. Uh, I found him fascinating for many, many reasons. Um, because he's a guy that you could say to him that, that, you know, today is Tuesday, or today is Wednesday, or today is Thursday, and he said, no, it's not, it's Sunday. And he would argue, like, all day long <clears throat> against an absolute fact. I mean, it was just, he was extraordinary in, in that sense. Um, I think he, he said to me first, when I first interviewed him, I said, look, this club could go into administration, the way you're going. And he said, yeah, yeah, that would be that would be regrettable. But, you know, it'll be OK. And at that thought, I, would, well, I thought, wow, 
regrettable. That's not exactly not exactly um, uh, encouraging for any Rangers fan. I think he he hoped he hoped that Rangers would do well in Europe. That's the first season that they would get into the group stages of European competition. That he would get millions in. Um, that the money that he that he borrowed or money that was advanced to him um, would then be quietly paid back because of European revenues and no one would find out what he'd actually what he'd actually done to take over the club. It wasn't any of his money that took over the club, it was other people's money. And I think he, he hoped that he would get away with that. And if he didn't get away with that, plan B was just fold it into administration, uh, torch all the debt and and go again. And he he actually he'd made he'd made no secret of that. I mean, he was you know, this is a guy who didn't have any any kind of passion for Rangers. Although he said he was a Rangers fan, he wasn't. Uh, he saw this as a pure money making exercise, and he didn't really care what he had to do to get it done. I know he regrets ever getting involved now, and and I think the feeling is very much mutual. Yeah, you're playing with fire if you get involved with Celtic Rangers, especially with um, an issue this massive with the the way that the fans uh, care about the clubs. Then he eventually he eventually does Rangers themselves appoint their own administrators. Now this pisses off HMRC for a number of reasons, but mainly because they um, themselves wanted to investigate Rangers by appointing their own administrators to it. So you might talk us through that uh, period where the administration begins to happen and uh, the fallout from it. Yeah, gosh, I mean, this is, this is complicated, uh, a myriad stuff going on here. Um, Craig Wise wanted to appoint his own administrators because um, he felt that he would get his own way through via that administration. Um, and, you had all sorts, at this point, you had all sorts of character coming into play. All sorts. Duff and Phelps come into play. Um, and we have to be, I suppose we have to be careful what we say about Duff and Phelps because Duff and Phelps have, have taken their own successful action. Uh, White House, David Whitehouse and Paul Clark, who were, Duff, who were Duff and Phelps in this case, taking their own case against, uh, um, against the Scottish uh, legal apparatus and have won. Um, so the administration um, and subsequent liquidation, I mean, it's listen, we could be here all day talking about it. Uh, it was smoke and mirrors all the way through. Um, I remember talking, having lots of conversations with um, White House and Clark about all of this. Um like the, the, the point I'd make right on this, and a point I've always made about it, is that you had you had good Rangers people who said we've been fans, you know, high net worth Rangers people, uh, who who were fans of the club, who cared passionately about the club, who wanted the best for the club, but in the club's hour of need, they didn't step up. And they didn't step up when David Murray was trying to sell the club, albeit the £50 million tax bill, were hanging over their head. They could understand that. And they stepped up too late 
in the whole administration process to avert the threat of of um, Charles Green. So we go from Craig White to Charles Green, Duff and Phelps, skin and hair flying all over the place. Even even today in today's papers, we have a new kind of new stuff about what happened, accusations, incriminations. You'd be you'd 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 write a book, a war and peace. Tolstoy would have nothing on this. Eventually, what does happen is Charles Green takes over the club. Mm. It's liquidated. Charles Green also owns a company called Sevco. They eventually take over the ownership, uh, the naming rights, Ibrox, um, contracts, the whole, uh, the whole essentially company. Eventually, that comes to be known as the Rangers Football Club Limited, and they apply to be part of the Scottish Premiership. That's rejected. So th- this is where I and people who aren't as familiar with the story or familiar with Scottish football probably have heard Celtic fans calling Rangers Savco or calling them Newco or calling them the Rangers FC. That's where it comes from because of all these different name changes and all the different things they went through. The Newco, which they became known as, they applied to be part of the Scottish Premiership that was re- rejected. And that's why they eventually joined the Scottish Football League in the fourth division. That's why they were, they were essentially back to square one as a football club. You can get into loads of different arguments about whether or not it's a new, exactly new thing where they start from scratch, have no trophies, have no history, blah, blah, blah. They wear the same kits. They they have the same badge. They play in the same stadium. They are all but the same thing except for what they went through. So without going into he said, she said, and who has what trophies, where where do you stand on the new company and what they are and their claim of 55 trophies and essentially just whitewashing what happened and saying nothing happened here. We just happened to be back in the fourth division and we're starting from from, from scratch. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I, I've always felt that, um, first of all, it's a, it's a tiresome saga and people will believe what they want to believe and wild horses won't change their opinion. So whether you believe it's 55 titles or whether you believe it's one title, um, you're banging your head against a a brick wall either way, trying to, trying to debate that point with somebody who might have a different view. Um, What what I would say is that, you know, Rangers um, left a lot of debt behind and, that debt, some of it, much of it, I don't know how much of it hasn't been paid. Um, so I think they will never do it. It's, it's like they want their cake and eat it, you know what I mean? So it's a, yes, we have, we are Rangers, we have 55 titles, but the Rangers that ran up all the debt and torched some of that debt, that's not us. So, you know, I can, I can understand, I can understand when people say, oh, you know, it's a new club and all the rest of it. I, 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 I look at Rangers and I see same supporters, same stadium, same beliefs, um, same club. But they cannot wash their hands of what happened before. I know it was, it was bad people that took over that club. I know 
the, none of the Rangers people now are then wanted, fans wanted any of these people in that club once they figured out what type of people they were. But that is part of it. You know, that is part, if you want to say that they have 55 titles, then that is part of their history. And some of that stuff is still to be mopped up. You know, I don't know how much uh, uh, debt remains from all of that. But I think that's troubling. All of that is, mm. is troubling. On one hand, you're saying it's, it's, we have our history, and I'm perfectly cool with that. Absolutely cool with that. Um, but you also have all this stuff. Um, you know, what are you, what are you going to do about all of that? All those, all those businesses that, that didn't get paid. Yeah. It, it does seem like a lack of accountability. Like you're saying, they want all of the good that they had previously with the, the titles and the history, but they don't want to own up to what they did. And I, I, it feels like they've never really owned up to what happened and said, we did something wrong here and we need to just move forward. And I, I think that's going to, probably hold Scottish football back for a while until eventually they do I, I if they ever know. do. I don't know if it's going to hold Scottish football back. Uh, I think I don't think many, many clubs give a damn about it anymore. Mm. Um, I think I think what I mean by that is that you'll never get past the head banging between each each side where oh yeah. Celtic fans will always say this and Rangers fans will always say that. Yeah, yeah you, you will never you will never get past that. But <clears throat> I'm always mindful not to generalize here. Um, uh, I would like to know how many Celtic fans actually give a toss about this anymore. Now, you, I know for a fact that there are many Celtic fans who obsess about it, and it's very important to them, and I wouldn't downplay that. But I suspect that there is an awful lot more Celtic fans who have moved on, you know, who enjoy the Brendan Rodgers era, who are very much enjoying the Ange Postecoglou era who are not living back in 2012 um and i think that's but i think you're right i think those people who are living back in 2012 part of them will always be in 2012 mm. they'll they'll feel that they were cheated out of trophies that rangers um got off lightly um and that the damage done uh, will never be healed you know this is Scottish football. Yeah. This kind of stuff is in the bones, you know? Yeah. So what about Rangers now? Again, th this is where the accountability issue comes into the fore, essentially, is, is where you look at what the club are doing now. And it doesn't differ too much from what they were doing previously in terms of investors building up debt. W what happens if Rangers' current investors pull out again? Is this something that the club should be worried about, given the fact that you know they've spent a lot of money under Steven Gerrard to secure that one title that prevented the ten in a row? They've built up again a lot of a lot of debt. Now that's been sort of um, not hidden away, but it, it's been the <clears throat> Champions League money has definitely made that a little bit better and a little bit easier. But what happens if Ange Postecoglou wins the league this year? Celtic go on to get Champions League football, Rangers don't, and suddenly the investors that have spent a lot of money in the club decide that they want to get paid up. Well, first of all, it's not debt, it's operating losses. Um, so it's not like before. Um, I think the people who run Rangers now have the best interest of the club at heart, obviously, because they're putting their own money into it. Um, they are Rangers people. 
if you go back, sorry, just to go back in time a little bit to Charles Green, an absolute fantasist who played the Rangers fans like a fiddle. Um, the Rangers fans saw through Charles Green from day one. They wanted him out. I think there might have been a death threat issue to him at one point. And then with his usual chicanery and him telling Rangers fans what they want to think, what they want to hear, he won them all around and he got money out of them and he made money out of it. And Charles Green was an absolute charlatan, um, a fantasist, an extraordinary chapter, actually. Of all the people involved in the Rangers' downfall, Murray won, Green two, possibly White, white three. Because Green was this incredible kind of opportunist, um, saying, oh, you know, the Premier League down in England want... want want Rangers in it? No, they didn't. That La Liga wanted Rangers in it? No, they didn't. The Dallas Cowboys was a massive commercial deal tight with the Dallas Cowboys. No, there wasn't. It was just, it was, I think at one point, while Rangers were losing games to Annan, Athletic and Sterling Albion in the lowest tier, he said that 7% of the world population uh, was in Celtic's reach for streaming rights for, for third division games. 500 million people, he said. Could could potentially buy streaming rights for Rangers versus Anon Athletic. I mean, it was just off the scale. So you go from that madness to the people who are running it now. Um, what they inherited was an absolute shambles, a dysfunctional uh, club, players of no value at all, winning nothing. So they had to revolutionise all that. They had to so much dead wood to get rid of. And that costs. Um, so, yeah, they're operating losses over the last four, three, four years are very, very high. Um, it is being uh, run on um, soft loans from very supportive directors. It's not being run on debt. Okay. Now, you say, what happens if these guys up and leave? I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised to see that happen, to be honest. I would be very, very surprised to see that happen. Rangers now are getting back on some kind of an even keel. They've just sold a player, Nathan Patterson, for multiple millions. They have more marketable assets now than they've had over the last 10, 12 years. Um, they've got European money. So they're in, an, uh, they're in a vastly, vastly better place. I think when I hear Celtic fans say, oh, yeah, liquidation two coming up, it's wishful thinking. It ain't going to happen. Okay. In terms of on the field, this has been an extraordinary season for many reasons. Stephen Gerrard leaving to to go to uh, Aston Villa, Ange Postacoglu surprising everyone with how good he has made Celtic. I, I think there, were, there was a worry that maybe once... Um, Jared left that maybe the league wouldn't have the same pull to the outsider. But I think a lot of people watched the uh, Celtic Rangers game midweek and saw the football that Celtic were playing. And I, I do feel like the outside of interest in Scottish football, not that that's the most important way of judging how popular Scottish football is, but it, it feels like it is still quite high now in comparison to where it was about five years ago. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, Jared is gone, and you think, "Oh, wow, that's a global figure left, left Scottish fo football." Um, and Postecoglou is not a global figure. 
but he's fascinating, absolutely intriguing man who's done this ginormous rebuild in the relative blink of an eye, um, has gone into markets that few clubs go into. Obviously, Celtic did it with Nakamura before, but gone into the Japanese market, signed players for buttons, more or less, relatively speaking, and they look class. And gone down to England and plucked players from lower reaches of England who look class. His eye for a player is amazing, and it's very, very exciting if you're a Celtic fan to see what he's doing. Not just the quality of it, but the pace of it. I mean, it only seems, God, five minutes ago that he was showing signs of frustration that the, the players weren't being brought in as quickly as he thought at the start of the season. Um, went out of the Europa League, playing that rookie back four um, uh, in, their, in the game at the Michelin when they went out of uh, the Europa League. That only seems like five minutes ago. But you look what's there now. It's very, very exciting. And it's almost like Gerard. It's almost like it feels to me anyway, I was saying this to a friend of mine, it feels like Gerard hasn't been the Rangers manager, hasn't been on the Scottish football scene for a long time. But it's only, it's mm. only a few months. Because I think what the gap that Gerard left behind in terms of the whole intrigue and excitement, Postacoglu has unquestionably filled that. Um, and Van Bronckhurst is an interesting uh, capture as well as the new Rangers manager. He's trying to trying to shake things up. So I think Scottish football, Scottish football over, over many years and particularly through the pandemic years has showed that it, it endures, you know. Um, we were told when Rangers, when Rangers hit the skids that it was Armageddon. No, it wasn't. We were told during the pandemic the clubs would go to the wall that this was the Titanic. Um, no, it wasn't. And it's like people in authority telling us this. You know, people who run the game in Scotland telling us this. Uh, Armageddon, yeah. Rangers, Rangers, um, financial woes, administration, liquidation, could have caused Armageddon to the rest of Scottish football. Absolute garbage. So I think it's, I think it's really intriguing. I think what's happening at Celtic at the moment is, is really fascinating. And the football that they're playing and the people that they're bringing in there's such energy in that place now. Yeah, big time. Especially if you compare it to about this time last year or about a month ago last year where you had the Dubai situation and oh, yeah. the mess. Of, it, it just seemed like almost an irreversible situation going on at Celtic. And then suddenly a year later, it's in the complete opposite direction. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing what, what Postacoglu has done. It, it, it just shows you what good managers can do. A good manager can take over a situation that looks absolutely um, hopeless and they can turn it around quickly with good decisions. Celtic's recruitment had been rubbish for a couple of, couple of seasons and they brought in a lot of expensive players, paying them lavishly, I would imagine, who are contributing very, very little. Too many loan players coming in too at big, chunky loan fees. Um and you're thinking, wow, this club has really lost its way. Dominic Mackay comes in as chief executive. He lasts five minutes, he's gone again. Like, wow, this is this is this could be Rangers dominance for a number of years. But they make the right appointment at the right time. They probably get lucky with Eddie Howe. 
um, shuffling away. Um, who knows what Eddie Howe would have been like? But I'd be, I'd be, I'd fall off my chair if he was as good as Postacoglu was turning out to be. Um, so they start making good appointments, having made a lot of bad appointments for a year or two. Um, they start making really good appointments again, good signings, um, good decisions, and and they're and look where they are now. It's very very mm. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Strength of character was probably the one thing that you question about Eddie Howe, and it turns out Ange Postecoglou has that in absolute spades. I would say you mentioned a book on the Rangers situation. I'd say there's a book on the Eddie Howe scenario. <laughs> how how <laughs> well, long that was dragged out? Yeah, how many days was that? 103 or 104 or something? That they were yeah. that they were waiting for Eddie Howe and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then he custard pies them. And then it's like, oh my God, what's going to happen now? And Ange Postacoglu is the saviour. Okay, listen, he hasn't won the league yet, but he's won a trophy. He's stabilised everything. And then he's kicked it forward. He's brought in these players that are very, very exciting. And he's just, in, in, in no time at all, he's eased the pain for the Celtic fans of, of last season. And he's got them looking forward to what they can achieve rather than looking back at what they didn't achieve with the 10 in a row. I mean, a, a big, yeah. big feat of management so far. Yeah, big time. Tom, it's been uh, fascinating as always. Thanks for joining me this evening. Pleasure, mate. Now, so that is us done on this week's Team 33. Thanks to you for listening. If you want to catch any of that back, the Rob Heffernan interview about his son, Carl Sain for AC Milan, is available on the YouTube and the Tom English piece as well is on the YouTube channel or on the podcast network in the O2B Sports app as well, where you can subscribe to the Team 33 feed, get notified every time a new podcast goes live. That's our stuff for this evening. We'll be back in the same time, same place next week. But until then, Ewa, Slango Foil. Take away, Johan.